Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 254, Saladin the Strategist, with Ben Duval. Last time, we talked about the first two years of Isaac Angelos's reign. After driving the Normans out of the empire, the new Vasilefs needed some breathing room. He faced usurpation attempts from his relatives and three separate provincial rebellions. He really couldn't afford another conflict with a Western power. So it was with an anguished sigh that Angelos received the news in autumn 1187 that Jerusalem had fallen to a Muslim army. Isaac knew that this would lead to the calling of a new crusade, and that most likely a huge foreign army would march to the gates of Constantinople. Before we get into how Angelos dealt with the Third Crusade, let's find out how Jerusalem fell. The last time we were in Utremir was towards the end of Manawil's reign. The emperor twice sent fleets to Egypt to help the king of Jerusalem in his attempts to capture a port there. The Latins had been in the Levant for 80 years at this point, and they'd realised that Egypt was going to be the key to their survival. If they could get their hands on the wealth of the Nile, then they could secure their hold on Outremir. Unfortunately for them, their great enemy, Nur al-Din, had come to the same conclusion. Today, we hear the story of how the emir got his men into Egypt first, and how Saladin used the resources of that kingdom to bring the Latins to ruin. The man I turn to to tell that story is Ben Duval, an author and fellow Byzantine enthusiast whose work can be found over at byzantineemporia.com. Ben has written the book on this topic, Saladin the Strategist, How the Crusaders Lost the Holy Land. It is available to buy now on Amazon, the Kindle version is ready to go, and print copies will be with you soon. 
For now, here's the interview. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the History of Byzantium. Hello, Robin. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about you, about how you came to write uh, and study history, and why is your website called the Byzantine Emporia? Well, so uh, my background is not academic. Um, I'd always been interested in the period, uh, basically ever since I started reading uh, Runciman's great three-volume history of the Crusades as a teenager. And around that time, I started reading a lot on Byzantium and the wider Islamic world. Um, I'd always been a little more interested in the military side of things. And one of the more memorable courses I took in college was one on Byzantine warfare with Walter Kagey. Uh, but what got me interested in writing about Saladin was something different, actually. So I was in the U.S. Marines for a number of years, and it was then uh, working on something completely unrelated that uh, I got interested in the question of how well uh, certain modern military concepts hold up outside of their current context. Now, not to get too technical, but this basically has to do with how military campaigns are aligned uh, with longer term political objectives and whether it makes sense to speak of a certain kind of strategy in armies that don't have modern communications or the ability to coordinate actions over long distances. So uh, Saladin and the Battle of Hattin jumped out as a perfect example of this, and I started researching uh, the rest of his career just for personal interest. Now, around this time, I'd been doing a lot of writing, and I posted it on my website, uh, Byzantine Emporia, which was uh, initially a uh, an e-commerce site. Um, I discovered that I had neither the interest nor the vocation in doing that, but I <laughs> ended up using it basically as a blog for sh- uh, short-term or short-form and longer-form pieces. Um, sort of out of that, I had uh, completed another book project, sort of a series of essays I'd written on Emperor John VI, who your listeners will meet later on, and the uh, mid-14th century Byzantine collapse. So I decided to undertake a new uh, and a little more ambitious writing project. And that's basically how Saladin the Strategist was born. Fantastic. Um, well, you are clearly the ideal man to tell us about what we have uh, not been hearing about while we've been at Constantinople with um, the fallout from uh, Manawil's death. Um, so just uh, tell the listeners, what does your book, what does Saladin the Strategist cover? Is it just Saladin's career or is it more focused on his military activity? So it is mostly focused on his military activity, which takes up most of his career. Um, there are the military aspect is inseparable from the politics and the diplomacy and everything else that was going on in the period. Um, it, it really is a very complex world and a lot is going on, but he himself is above all a military man. He's in the saddle for most of his career. And that really forms the essence of his achievement. Right. So let's let's learn a bit, bit more about Saladin. Just to remind the listeners where we were on this podcast um, the last time we were in in Utremia and, and the Middle East, um, Nur al-Din uh, was the Crusaders' main enemy. Listeners will remember him as the ruler of an empire stretching from Mosul through Edessa, Aleppo, down to Damascus. And both he and the King of Jerusalem had realized that Egypt was collapsing under Fatimid rule. And so that was the last time we were there. Manawil Komnenos sent a fleet to Egypt to try and capture a port um, at Damietta, but the whole operation sort of failed. So can you tell us how does Saladin fit into that picture? What, Where did he come from and uh, how did he end up in Egypt? 
So Saladin is born into what can best be described as the military caste of the Seljuk Empire. Um, of course, central authority is sort of broken down by this point, pretty soon after Manzikert. And power has devolved to several different regional power centers, all under nominal Seljuk rule, but pretty much independent. And they're always fighting among themselves. And this naturally creates a huge demand for talented soldiers and commanders. Basically, anyone who does well can rise very far. Uh, it doesn't matter whether they're part of the old Turkish aristocracy. And Saladin himself is from a Kurdish background. So uh, this also makes this caste very opportunistic, and they're always moving around. Saladin's own father started out up in Armenia, then he moved down to Iraq, and that's where Saladin was born. And then right after that, right after his birth, he moves yet again and takes up service with Zengi, which is a name that should be familiar to your listeners. So uh, Zengi, just to remind everyone, was the emir of Mosul and Aleppo. And it's both he and his son, Nur ad-Din, who end up destroying the county of Edessa, which is the first of the crusader states to fall. This is a huge turning point in the crusades, and it posed a major threat to the crusaders themselves. They basically had success up to this point, largely because the other Muslim powers of the region were divided among themselves. They couldn't put up a united front, and they were always able to cut a deal with one power while attacking another. Zengi and Nur ad-Din subdue all the other Muslim powers and absorb them into their own empire. And this way, they, they're the first real united state that the Crusaders are facing and pose a real danger to them. So by the time this process is wrapping up, it's uh, around when Saladin is coming of age in the 1150s. And Nur ad-Din has conquered nearly all of inland Syria, including a lot of Christian territory. And it's right around then that Saladin starts to follow in his father's footsteps and begin pursuing a career in the army. Excellent. And um, my understanding is when Nur al-Din realizes I need to get men into Egypt to stop the Crusaders from taking over, uh, Saladin is is dispatched along with his mentor down to Egypt. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So Nur al-Din's a bit of a victim of his own success. Um, he's basically stripped away a lot of the Crusader territory, but now he's given them very defensible boundaries. Um, the the coast, which is where all the Crusader states or all the Crusader territory is at this point, is separated from the inland by a few geographic barriers. You have a uh, coastal mountains up in the north, and then you have the Jordan River and the Negev Desert in the south. So. There are two things going on here. The Crusaders want to take over Egypt, but also Nur ad-Din wants to take over Egypt. He realizes this would allow him to attack them from two sides, um, sort of circumventing the barriers to the east. And it would also give him the resources to finance the wars, basically because warfare had become so difficult. The Crusaders had gotten really good at marching out and kind of fending off his armies. It was very hard for him to make any progress. It's sort of a situation like the Byzantine frontier in the ninth and 10th centuries, where you have these expeditions that are arranged. Um, warriors will come from all over for um, an incursion into the kingdom of Jerusalem or one of the other states. So unless Nur ad-Din can really deliver good results, get his men booty, land possibly captives, then they're not going to be interested in coming. And if he can only pick off a town or a castle here and there, then it just makes the whole war very expensive and time-consuming. So he sends three expeditions down to Egypt, as you mentioned, the uh, all under Saladin's uncle and mentor. The first two of these are failures. Uh, the Franks are called in um, to fend off the Syrian army. 
but then the third one is a success, largely because it's the Crusaders who invade this time, and then the Egyptians call on, on Nur ad-Din for help. So rather than just chase off the Franks and then go home, this time the Syrians decide to take over the whole country. They depose the reigning vizier, and Saladin's uncle is now appointed vizier by the Fatimid Caliph. Two months after that, however, he dies suddenly, and Saladin, through some internal politicking and negotiation, manages to succeed him as both commander of the army and as vizier, and basically in one swoop becomes the ruler of one of the largest countries in the Muslim world. Right, and so this is shortly after our last visit there. I'm basically turning to you to say, you know, in our narrative, we've moved on a number of years and we haven't heard anything from Utremir and we've just heard in the reign of Isaac Angelos that Jerusalem has fallen to Saladin. So there's there's this gap from him being, uh, you know, Nur al-Din's subordinate having just taken over Egypt to him being the man who takes Jerusalem back uh, for the Muslim world. So can you... Uh, can you do some heavy lifting and take us through the narrative? How did he do it and uh, what happened? I'd be happy to. So Saladin's now in a bit of an awkward position. He's young, he's in his early 30s, and he hasn't really won the full respect of the army just yet. Um, a lot of the commanders actually go home refusing to serve under him. But he's also stuck between two masters, uh, both as a general under Nur ad-Din and then as an official of the Egyptian state. So initially, he has to maintain this delicate state of affairs. Because he has so few supporters, the populace is largely hostile. Um, he has to kind of boil the lobster slowly, so to speak. He starts buying off key leaders, putting his own supporters in positions of power, and he gradually replaces the Shiite religious establishment with Orthodox Sunni clerics. And after about two and a half years of this, he's finally confident enough to depose the caliph and rule directly in Nur ad-Din's name. So he, the caliph falls sick, dies, but it's pretty clear that Saladin has him killed. He's doing a couple other important things during this time. He starts rebuilding the Egyptian fleet, which has fallen into disrepair. And this allows him to challenge Christian sea power. They have basically had a monopoly on the sea, the Italian sailors um, under the Venetians, Pisans, and Genoese. And now by building up a fleet, Saladin will be able to raid the coastline and also defend Egypt better. He also begins securing his communications with Syria. Um, now, Egypt and Syria are separated by a long desert. Um, a large part of this is protected, or not protected, but blocked by crusader castles. So anytime a caravan travels between Syria and Egypt, it has to have a very strong escort. And even then, it's kind of a hazardous crossing. So Saladin starts attacking these fortresses. And this is really his first time commanding an army on his own. And you already start to see some of his characteristic style of warfare emerging. He starts out by uh, targeting a castle on the Gulf of Aqaba, which is just near the fort, the famous from Lawrence of Arabia. Um, and the way he does this is by sending his siege troops ahead by land and by sea. But then he takes his cavalry, marches up the coast and launches a raid into Palestine. So he sacks a border town, which draws out the Crusader army, um, which comes up against him. He marches around them, goes north, sacks another town, and then loops back around and joins up with a siege troop. So now the Crusader army is completely tied up. They don't really want to abandon the frontier because they fear another invasion. 
he's probably destroyed their provisions so they couldn't even march across the desert to lift the siege if they wanted to. And he's able to take the castle very quickly after that. He attacks another few castles in the uh, following years, but he doesn't really have a whole lot of success with these, at least not as much as the first. And um, he basically, he spends the next few years managing affairs in Egypt. Now, a few historical sources report at this time that this is when Saladin's relations with Nuruddin begin to break down. Basically, the emir suspects that his vassal is harboring designs for independence. And he just starts to mistrust him. There are all these rumors swirling around court, but it's not really clear because all these chronicles were written years after Nuruddin's death when there was plenty of bad blood between his family and Saladin. So it's hard to tell whether or not that colored events. And what is true, however, is that Nuruddin is starting to get frustrated with his returns on Egypt. So he basically sent Saladin's uncle down there um, as an investment. He he wanted to get a return on his money. He spent a lot on outfitting the, the three invasions. And Egypt is a famously rich land, so he wants to see some kind of return. But Saladin is he's not really able to pay that much. I mean, the treasury was empty from three major campaigns or three major wars. He has to spend a lot of money just buying off supporters, rebuilding the state and fighting off external threats such as the 1169 siege of Damietta. So he doesn't really have a lot of money in the treasury and he's only able to send up small amounts. Um, and Nuruddin gets fed up and sends down an auditor to look at the state finances. And by the... By the time this wraps up, which is the spring of 1174, it does in fact seem that Nuruddin is preparing an army to invade Egypt, or at the very least to hold his vassal to account. But just then, that's when Nuruddin dies. He's succeeded by his 11-year-old son named As-Sali, but his empire basically immediately shatters. Um, all the different power centers within all the major cities within his empire basically become independent. Saladin declares his loyalty to Asali, but from this point forward, he's pretty much a, an independent leader. We we should probably um, just remind the listeners, I guess, that there was always likely to be this kind of conflict, wasn't there? Because it's hard to hold Mosul and uh, you know Alexandria at the same time because they're so far apart. So it, the timing of Nur al-Din's death really suits Saladin, doesn't it? Because suddenly... He's the senior military commander, you know, in this realm. And he avoids a conflict which was probably inevitable. Absolutely. Yeah, Saladin gets very, very lucky at this point. So he's basically already had one huge stroke of luck when he was basically handed Egypt on a silver platter. And now he gets another. So to, to greatly simplify things, there are now four major power centers. So as you said, there's Aleppo, there's Mosul, Damascus, and Cairo. So Aleppo is nominally under the control of Asali, the heir, but his region is a real power behind the throne. Mosul was held by Asali's cousin, but he declares independence right away and from that point on acts as an independent power. Finally, there's this coterie of uh, nobles in Damascus, which holds power there. Now, everyone mistrusts everyone else, including Saladin, um, his reputation probably wasn't helped by all the uh, the rumors that were swirling around just before Nuruddin's death. Um, so 
but the alliances can go any which way. You know, these are all, these people are out for themselves. Basically they're, it's a very uncertain environment and no one can trust anyone. So as it happens, Aleppo and Mosul end up teaming up against Damascus. Now this forces the nobles in Damascus to call in Saladin for help. They were very ill disposed towards him before, but now they have no choice. And it's very lucky for Saladin because if things had gone any other way, I mean, if Damascus had not pretty much not come to him begging for protection, then there's no way he would have ever gotten a foothold in Syria. It would have been very hard to cross the desert against possible Frankish opposition, then besiege Damascus, possibly face a uh, relief army from one of its allies, and then also have to worry about the situation back home at e- in Egypt, which is not secure at this point. I mean, there are still minor rebellions popping up here and there. But instead, Saladin's able to ride to Syria with just a few hundred cavalry and then start recruiting allies. Um, he spends that winter on a diplomatic campaign, winning over allies, conquering some territories. And by the end of the year, he's conquered all of Syria as far north as the city of Hama. And before the end of the year, he goes on to besiege Aleppo itself. So Aleppo and Mosul are pretty desperate at this point. They try to have Saladin assassinated, which fails, but almost succeeds. And then uh, they turn to the Franks and ally with them. They bribe them to attack his rear, which they do. And that finally forces Saladin to lift the siege of Aleppo. This then gives the two allies enough time to raise a large army and they march out in the spring against him. Now, in the meantime, Saladin has called up reinforcements of his own from Egypt and the two sides meet in battle in April of 1175. Saladin's victorious and Aleppo agrees to a peace, but Mosul wants to keep the war going. So the next year, Mosul persuades Aleppo to rejoin the war they fight another battle. Saladin wins again. And this time there's a general peace. Now, this one's a bit of a, a more comprehensive piece. It includes all the powers of the region, including the smaller states of Mesopotamia. And it's actually pretty successful. They all agree that if anyone violates the treaty, they'll all, everyone will band against the one who does it. And um, this peace ends up lasting for six years, which doesn't sound long, but it is in the time and place. Um, and most Importantly of all, it's endorsed by the caliph in Baghdad. So he invests Saladin with formal authority over Egypt and all of Syria outside of Aleppo, kind of giving him the the official sanction of the uh, religious establishment. So the uh, the states of Utremir, in a way, are unlucky that under other circumstances, Nur al Din's coalition would have fallen to pieces, and they would have been facing disunited opposition as they had been and instead with the timing of everything they end up with this roughly the same coalition kind of facing them just under a new leader absolutely uh now he has almost fully reconstituted nuruddin's state and they're just back in the same position they were to start with and it, it's interesting because up to this point saladin's been professing his loyalty to asali to nuruddin's heir um, he, he'd been claiming to look out after his true interests and to uphold Nur ad-Din's original vision, but now he doesn't have to anymore. Um, this was a pretext for le- legitimacy, but the final arbiter of legitimacy is the caliph. And he's the one who says Saladin can now rule in his own name. So now he's basically the new, the new Nur ad-Din. And it's at this point that he really turns his attention to the Holy War. So for the next several years after this, uh, Saladin's completely free to turn his attention to the Holy War. But as a matter of fact, he concludes a truce with the Franks at this point. And the reason he does this is because Syria has been suffering a very bad drought for the past few years. And most of warfare really consists of 
rating and counter rating. Um, and this is very economically damaging and neither side can really afford it at this point. So they agree, they agree to a truce, but this is only on the Syrian frontier. Egypt is fair game at this point. So both sides start making preparation for war on another front. Now, uh, the king of Jerusalem, who is Baldwin IV at this point, um, he hopes to launch another expedition similar to the one against Damietta. So he asks the Byzantines for help, and Manuel agrees and sends a fleet. This arrives in the summer of 1177. But squabbling among the Franks themselves delay the operation, just as it had in 1169, and eventually the Byzantines give up and sail off in disgust. They probably they remember the disaster eight years before, and they don't want to repeat it. But um, there are still all these knights gathered for a campaign. They can't attack Syria. They can't attack Egypt at this point. So they decide to go up and uh, raid the border with Aleppo for the rest of the season. Now, while all this was going on, Saladin had been gathering his forces in Egypt, preparing for an invasion. But once he gets the news that it's not coming, he decides to go on the offensive himself. So he marches up the coast with a large army, um, and he's initially very successful. Um, Baldwin's only able to summon a few hundred knights. All the rest of them are off fighting in Aleppo or in the territory of Aleppo. And he takes these knights to defend the cities along the southern border. So just like the raid in 1170, when Saladin bypassed these cities, uh, he does the same thing and he just ignores them totally. Doesn't get caught up in a siege and just heads north straight into the heart of Palestine. This time, however, he completely cuts his troops loose and allows them to spread out across the land and start burning towns and villages, seizing crops, devastating the land. And Saladin himself, meanwhile, moves up with his siege equipment for to take on some of the heavier towns. But he hasn't beaten the Crusaders yet. Although they're still greatly outnumbered, um, Baldwin manages to sneak up and surprise him when with what troops he has on hand. And it, it's probably a perfectly timed attack. It's just as Saladin's baggage train is getting caught up as they're trying to cross this swollen stream in the autumn rains. And Saladin's taken totally by surprise. He tries to recall all the surrounding troops who are out raiding, um, but it's way too late. Um, he himself is almost captured, but he escapes. And when the rest of the army hears news of this, they all just totally dissolve into chaos and start fleeing to the border. Um, but unfortunately for them, they've been riding hard since basically since the Nile, but especially since they got into Palestine, they're exhausted. And now they've lost all their provisions and it starts raining. So they're miserable, cold and hungry. And a lot of them just give themselves up. Saladin makes it back to Cairo with probably most of his men. Both all, all chronicles agree that this is a huge disaster for him. Um, but it's not quite clear just how many he lost. So he spends the winter rebuilding his army. Um, and he kind of learns a few lessons from this. So the first one is that he has to be much more cautious around the Crusaders. Um, he's, he's faced them before in battle when fighting in Egypt, but never quite like this, never on the scale of a campaign. And from this point forward, he's very, uh, a lot more at least cautious than he had been. He also learns that Egypt is not really a good place to launch a campaign from. It entails a very difficult desert crossing, um, which wears his men out during the length of it. And then if he does suffer any defeat or reverse, he has to cross the desert again to potentially disastrous effect. So from this point forward, he launches all major invasions from Syria. Now, Baldwin kind of figures this out too. He realizes that he got lucky and that, but at the same time that he has to focus on his Syrian border. So he starts preparing the kingdom's fortifications, which were in a very bad state of repair. 
And he also builds a major border fort at a place called Jacob's Ford, which is a crossing on the Upper Jordan uh, right below the Golan Heights. So this is a prime avenue for any invasion route coming from Damascus. Saladin returns to Syria uh, the next spring. So this is 1178. And at this point, he really needs a victory. He has to restore his prestige. He's still he's still new. He has the caliph's endorsement, but he's he's not established. And it would be very easy for all the other Muslim princes to turn against him, for people to sense weakness and try to exploit some vulnerability. As it happens, the treaty with the other Muslim princes holds, and he doesn't face any immediate threats. The, the drought is still in effect, so he can't really do a whole lot that year. Uh, but the next year, he gets an opportunity to redeem himself. So what he does is he summons a large army to the Golan Heights, and he starts sending out small detachments across the river, across the Jordan. And these are just quick hit and run raids, but they're seizing the harvest, burning down villages, causing havoc. Baldwin can't have this. It's He's in a precarious state, and he needs to put an end to it. So he gathers some men and ambushes one of these parties. It's a great success. He almost destroys it. And then the cavalry take off in pursuit, but they get strung out and disordered as they're going along. And it's just at that point that Saladin has heard the news. He arrives with his main army and he attacks the pursuing knights. And scores of them are slaughtered. The king himself is almost captured. And it's basically the reverse of the battle in 1177. Saladin completely avenges himself. He inflicts a major defeat on the Crusaders. And now he's free to go besiege that one border fortress at Jacob's Ford. So he raises it to the ground. And now he's opened up the borders to the kingdom once more. The two sides eventually decide on a new truce the following spring in 1180. And now we see a period of unprecedented peace, which lasts for a full two years. A very long time in Saladin's career. The longest, as a matter of fact. But other events in the Muslim world shape things up once again. And at the end of 1181, Asali dies in Aleppo. And this completely upsets the dynamics of the whole region. So what happens is Saladin's down in Egypt at the time. And he had been hoping to go up and take Aleppo once Asali eventually died. But instead, the prince's cousin comes in and takes over the city. And he is welcomed in. You know, he's a family member. They're very prestigious. They they have... um, a long history there, and they're well-loved by the people. So he gets Aleppo, and Saladin, Saladin wants it, and he starts making the case for war. So it's pretty clear that war is on the horizon. And at the same time, over that winter, the Franks violate the truce yet again. So Saladin has to retaliate against them. The listeners uh, should note that at this point, Saladin is not attempting to conquer Jerusalem. That's not his political um a goal at this point. He still wants to fully retake over Nur al-Din's realm. And the wars against the Franks are kind of a means to an end, a means to generate prestige and legitimacy. Absolutely. So Saladin's really interested in this point, or his main focus at the very least, is reconstituting Nur al-Din's empire. So 1182 marks a very intense period of warfare, both against the Franks and against his Muslim neighbors. So in the summer, Saladin begins by launching a new invasion of the kingdom of Jerusalem, and this is his largest yet. So he sacks a few towns and once again sends raiders out to devastate the countryside, but this time he's much more cautious, and he doesn't let himself get caught off guard. A crusader army marches out to meet him, and the two sides face off on an extremely hot July day, 
And they sort of go back and forth for a while before both sides end up withdrawing. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about what warfare actually looked like at this point. So to greatly simplify things, the Crusaders' army were built around heavy cavalry, while Saladin's army was built around lighter horse archers. The Christian knights preferred to charge in a large coherent mass, and whenever they managed to connect to land a solid blow, this could be absolutely devastating. The battle in 1177 was a good example of that. Um, Even when they were completely outnumbered, the knights were able to win a huge victory. But more often what happened was the lighter and faster horse archers could just dodge out of the way. They could evade them, surround them, start peppering them with arrows, and just continue to harass them until the charge ran out of steam. What this meant was the Franks had to rely on a large number of infantry as well. They didn't have so many horses, so they always had a smaller proportion of cavalry in their armies than the Muslims did. So the Franks instead relied on a lot of crossbowmen and archers protected by a line of spears. And this functioned as something of a wall, and it allowed the knights to sally out from behind it and charge whenever they detected a good opportunity. And they would also do something very similar on what was called a fighting march. So basically, they needed to get from point A to point B in the face of heavy opposition. And what they would do is they would march their cavalry in a long column with infantry columns on either flank protecting them. And this allowed the knights to charge out whenever they had to, to beat back attacks. They could march over pretty long distances this way in the face of heavy opposition. And when they would otherwise just would have been swarmed and destroyed. So this is basically what happens in 1182. Saladin's army attacks and largely has the better of it, but the Franks are able to complete a fighting withdrawal in pretty good order and they reach the safety of a nearby castle. But now there's a problem for Saladin. So he has tens of thousands of men concentrated in a, in a very small area and supplies quickly start to run out. It's also very hot, so he needs to disperse his men for water, but he can't. Um, the Franks have, provision, have stockpiled provisions in their castle Um But basically, the only way that Saladin can feed his army is by scattering it and letting them forage. Since they're there, that would be too dangerous. So he pretty much has to withdraw. And this is basically the the basis of the Franks' defensive strategy. They'll march out. They'll force an encounter, but not really get engaged, not really allow themselves to get drawn into a pitched battle. Then they can pull back to, to stockpiles of food or water and... Eventually, the invading army just has to leave. They they can't sustain it for long enough. They can't remain in the field. But for the time being, Saladin has another trick up his sleeve. So he scheduled a rendezvous with the Egyptian fleet, which is due to uh, sail up the coast that summer. Now, I, I think I mentioned before something about coordinating action over long distances and how that was sort of a crucial defining feature of pre-modern armies. Now, this is actually an interesting exception to it, and it's one of Saladin's most creative campaigns. So he's arranged for the fleet to come up the coast, um, to come up to the area around Beirut. He heads north, posts lookouts on the coastal mountains, and then when they spot the fleet on the horizon, he crosses with his army for a lightning strike on Beirut. Now, he doesn't bring any siege equipment with him this time, because he needs to move fast and get the advantage of surprise. So he only has his miners who dig tunnels under the walls and his assault troops who try to scale the walls. Uh, Meanwhile, his fleet attacks the city by the sea. The city puts up surprisingly strong resistance and they hold out for several days. And then finally, Saladin gets word that a relieving army is on its way and he's forced to withdraw. So the attack is a failure, but it's not really a disaster. It doesn't cost him anything. 
And if it had succeeded, it would have been a huge victory. It would have basically cut the Crusader states in half, preventing them from reinforcing each other. And it also would have given his fleet a base on the Syrian coast. But once he withdraws from Beirut, he decides that he's inflicted enough punishment on them. He's salvaged his prestige for their violation of the truce. And he can kind of leave them alone for a bit while he turns his attention back to Aleppo and Mosul. So uh, once again, the two sides are joining together, but this time they no longer really have the forces to put a large army in the field. So Mosul is the stronger of the two. So Saladin decides to attack them first. He crosses the Euphrates in the autumn and he conducts an extensive campaign across the region. He wins over most, most of the smaller princes of the area and he conquers all of Mosul's territory up to the city itself. His siege of the city ultimately fails, but he's eliminated any threat from this region. So he ultimately turns back to deal with Aleppo at this point. There, after a siege of several weeks, its ruler finally agrees to surrender the city in return for all of Saladin's conquests in Mesopotamia. So this finally gives him control of all of inland Syria and all of the borders with the Crusader states. Now he can turn his attention back to the kingdom of Jerusalem. So over the winter, the Lord of Karak, which is one of the fortresses guarding the desert routes between Egypt and Syria, he launches a naval raid into the Red Sea. And this threatens the holy city of Medina, which is a grave offense to Islam, and it demands immediate retaliation. So Saladin begins his campaign of 1183, much like the previous year. Once again, the Crusaders march out in a tight formation, and they occupy a well-supplied position near the Muslim camp. They fortify the site, and they refuse to do anything more than just skirmish until supplies eventually run out on both sides and Saladin's forced to withdraw. He still needs to punish the Lord of Karak, however. So once he dismisses part of the army for the season, uh, he goes to lay siege to it. It's a very strong fortress, and the siege lasts for several weeks um, when a relieving army finally arrives and Saladin is forced to withdraw. He doesn't have all his cavalry with him, and he isn't prepared to fight a battle in the open field. But this does give him a good idea for the next year's campaign. So his, fundal, his fundamental problem at this point is logistics. The Crusaders can gather an army in a well-supplied position and basically wait it out until he runs out of supplies. But they can't really do this in the open desert around Karak, which is also open terrain, which is ideal for his cavalry archers. So he begins a campaign of 1184 with another siege of Karak, which once again predictably draws a relieving army. This time, however, he has all his cavalry on hand and he's prepared to fight in the open field. So he goes off to meet them, but as it turns out, they're able to slip past him by marching at night, and they lift the siege, get to Karak, and he can really do nothing but just launch a sort of limited raid into Palestine at that point. But what he does get from this is a good proof of concept, and now he sort of has a template for how to launch all future campaigns. So the following year, he turns his attention back to Mosul. He makes one last attempt to conquer it, which fails. But this ends with a general treaty among all the Muslim princes who now agree to contribute to the Holy War, which is one of Saladin's biggest concerns. He needs more troops at, and more money at somebody else's expense. So what this means is that by 1187, Saladin's able to gather the largest army that he's ever commanded. He assembles some forty to 45,000 men, probably in the Golan Heights. And meanwhile, the Franks muster their largest army ever. They get, I would say, probably 23,000, um, probably about half, maybe a little more, uh, what Saladin has under arms. And once again, they occupy a very well-supplied and well-fortified camp, and they refuse to come out to fight. 
This time, Saladin has a plan to deal with them. So he's he's already experimented with a few different techniques, and this time he he hits on one. the The last campaign gave him an idea. So what he does is he leaves his main army encamped near them, um, sort of blocking the the water sources in the region, and then he takes a small detachment back to besiege Tiberias. Now this is a an important border city on the Sea of Galilee. And capturing it would help to open up the kingdom. It would give him a foothold on the far side of the Jordan. And it creates a real dilemma for the Franks. On the one hand, it's over a day's journey from their camp to Tiberias. And this is across wide open country with very little water along the way. And it's also the beginning of July. So it's very hot. On the other hand, losing Tiberias would be a huge blow. So there's a very famous... um, squabble among the crusaders themselves which you can read about more in the book and in the end they ultimately decide to march out against tiberius and this is exactly what saladin wants so as soon as he hears that they're on the move he abandons the siege and rejoins his army and leads it against them so once again the franks march in their usual fighting formation but the muslim troops press them so hard that they're slowed down to a crawl they're forced to camp for the evening in a village with no water. And during the night, Saladin's men give them no relief. Uh, they basically harass them with arrows. And they also light the dry grasses on the surrounding hills on fire, which blows hot smoke into their camp. The next morning, the crusaders try to resume the march, but they're hot, they're tired, and they're weakened by thirst. They're also completely enveloped by this point, and they start to lose cohesion. The vanguard tries to break through the encirclement and get through to some nearby springs, But the Muslim troops just open up, let them pass through. And then once they have, they just close back again, um, trapping the rest of the army. With the main force, things are starting to go bad. Um, They run up to a nearby hill, uh, which is actually the peak of an extinct volcano called the Horns of Hattin, which gives its name to the battle. And there they put up a very desperate last stand. But they all eventually surrender or are killed. And the king of Jerusalem himself is captured. So out of the tens of thousands in the Christian army, only a few hundred escaped death or capture, making it one of the biggest disasters in military history. So at this point, Saladin's pretty much wiped out every man who can bear arms in the kingdom. And just like 10 years before, he cuts his army loose and allows them to rampage to the land. This time, there's no one to stop them. And they capture nearly all the cities and castles in the kingdom, which are left virtually defenseless. Towards the end of September, Saladin himself moves against Jerusalem which is held by only a handful of knights and a body of armed citizens. After a siege of about two weeks, the city surrenders on October the 2nd. There's now one last important city to be taken in in the kingdom, and that's the city of Tyre. So this is an extremely well-defended port city, which is only connected to the mainland by a narrow neck of land, which gives very little room for the siegers. Saladin bypassed it earlier. He actually had a good chance to take it, but it would it still would have taken time, and he wanted to move as rapidly as he could to sweep up the rest of the kingdom. But in the meantime, by his bad luck, the survivors of Hattin uh, arrived in the city and started uh, fortifying the defenses. But most importantly, reinforcements came from Europe and started putting the city in a state of good defense. So once Jerusalem falls, Saladin finally goes to besiege Tyre. But by this point in in the year, his troops are tired, it's late, it's beginning to rain and getting cold, and ultimately he's forced to abandon the siege on New Year's Day of 1188. So at this point, the kingdom of Jerusalem is all that's left of it, other than a few castles on the interior, is a single port city. 
And this leaves them with a very small foothold for the eventual arrival of the Third Crusade. So Saladin is able to take like control of the whole kingdom so quickly after the Battle of Hattin. And, and it, it feels like the Crusaders have been in the area for, you know, 90 years and, and no one's been able to do this and, um, and to kind of knock them out so decisively. Do you, do you think that is down to the genius of Saladin, Saladin the strategist, or do you think, uh, you know, it, it just was a matter of time before the Crusaders got knocked out? I do, Robin. I think that it's questionable what ultimately would have happened to the Crusaders over a long enough time. It's quite possible that they just would have been worn down over the decades or centuries. But so long as they were able to field a long, uh, strong army and hold out in the way that they normally did, they would always at the very least be able to protect a certain core territory, which is that defensible coastal region. And what I think you really see with Saladin is that although he's concerned about all these other affairs, about reconstituting Nur ad-Din's empire, about fighting Mosul and Aleppo and whatnot, that he really does have his eye on Jerusalem the whole time. I mean, it's a major part of his propaganda campaigns. It's a major part of his justification for all the wars against other Muslims. And I think that it is a legitimate concern of his own, that, or that it's a true concern of his own. And I, I think that what you see in that period of about, well, certainly going as far back as 1177, but then really in 1182 to 1184, you really see him working out the core of his strategy, how he goes about campaigns, how he figures out that the Crusader army is the target that has to be destroyed. And until then, he's never going to win a real victory that brings him anything meaningful. Fantastic. Well, I recommend that uh, anyone who'd like to know more buys the book and uh, discovers the uh, entire picture of uh, Saladin's strategy. Where should they go to find the book? So it's available on Amazon right now. Um, If you don't want to use Amazon, then it should, by the time this comes out, be available on byzantineemporia.com. Amazing. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Robin. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much to Ben for coming on the podcast. Do check out Saladin the Strategist, How the Crusaders Lost the Holy Land, on Amazon right now. And do visit byzantineemporia.com, where you can check out Ben's other work, including another excellent book on Byzantium, Midway Through the Plunge, John Cantacuzinos and the Fall of Byzantium, which follows the Emperor John VI, who we will meet in the mid-14th century. Follow Ben on Twitter, at Byzantine Emporia.